G'day. Welcome to Project Leap. This is a podcast for doers, as you would have seen on our Facebook page. Before we get to that, though, my name is Meredith Pappas. I am a small business owner and entrepreneur uh, based in Mackay in regional North Queensland. And uh, I'd like to now just throw to my other wonderful, fabulous co-host, Tara Nevin, who is based on the Sunshine Coast. Hey, Tara, how are you going? Oh, actually, Meredith, I've had some really, a really interesting week. I've been touring uh, mostly through central Queensland this week and having some very interesting conversations with entrepreneurs in regional areas. And actually, our guest today, I think, is going to be really relevant for some of the conversations that I've had. One of the, some of the things that I found quite interesting is there's some fantastic local-based businesses, predominantly service, but some are uh, product-based businesses that provide to the local communities. Now, when we've had down to, downturn in mining lately, um, you know that's been that's effect, the local economy has drastically affected their businesses. And mm. one of the things that um, that they struggle to understand and actually to find support and assistance is these middle-tier businesses in terms of actually scaling a, serv- a service predominantly. Products, not so, not so hard, but scaling a service globally or even nationally so that they're not so affected by the local economy. Mm. And, you know, it's funny you say about the, the, the support and the backup for that because that is exactly why Project Leap was born um, because they're in this space, particularly around that small to medium enterprise, there isn't a lot of advocacy and not a lot of voice there. So uh, I found it really interesting that it's not just people saying, oh, look, I don't know what to do, I can't do it. There's not a lot out there to say this is how you do it. So It's very much for startups. But I, as, as we've yeah. often discussed, it's it's not so much there for the middle tier businesses that are looking no. to scale, even nationally, let alone globally. Mm. And I do find the, the ones that struggle the most are the service-based businesses. That's right. But with further ado, I think we should actually have a, a bit further of a, ch- further of a chat with our guest today who comes all the way or actually is all the way from America. Um, <laughs> and buddies, don't don't get too concerned. He is uh, has Australian in his genes and we'll ask him more about that when we get into the interview. But, Meredith, let me introduce uh, Jason Taves. So, Jason, um, I met Jason a couple of, uh, probably a couple of weeks ago at one of the co-working spaces here on the Sunshine Coast and he blew my mind. I could have talked to him for easily a couple of days uh, and so I decided we needed to interview him. Um, <laughs> so, so Jason has a focus on creating, dis- creating disruptive technology and building a community focused on stewardship and excellence. Jason has mentored and led companies across the globe. So from Kansas... Dorothy, um, from, the, from being a Kansas farm boy to a mathematician, there has been a unique global first vision to his business endeavours throughout the last 10 years. Currently, he serves as VP of technology for Alice uh, Analytics, and I wonder if that's a play on words coming from Kansas, um, a tech company creating a search engine for soft skills from video content for the human resources and performance industries. So that's a mouthful, um, but he's amazing. And his key message, which we want to talk to him today about, is his challenge to find ways to connect what has been historically a local-only business model to an ever-growing global economy. So we're looking forward to having a chat to him about that. So welcome, Jason. Thank you very much, Tara. It's a pleasure to be here, or on this call at least. <laughs> so I've got to ask now, because I thought that was rather witty of me, is Alice um, got anything to do with Kansas, or is that was that just... Um, well, how did the name you know, come about? I think there's some subtle hints in that name, but now that you said it, I don't know that anyone on the team has really actually acknowledged that that was kind of the, the thought or the vision. I mean, we are a Kansas-based uh, startup company that's uh, getting ready to grow and scale, but 
Um, yeah, I, it's not spelled like Alice, so no. there's a little difference. I think the main word that it was branded off of was analysis. Uh-huh. Ah, I thought it might have been Dorothy because you know yeah. that's who went to Oz. Us, us Kansans don't like make that connection so often because like we're just <laughs> here, right? It's like dumping yeah. everybody in Australia, like oh kangaroos and koalas and i know right yeah <laughs> so i you know we get it a lot when we travel but uh yeah i'll have to bring that up to the team tomorrow it's pretty funny so jason tell us a little bit about where you started and you know i know our audience might be going i'm hearing an american voice here isn't this about australian uh, regional entrepreneurs but tell us a little bit about your connection to australia and um and also regions in general both in australia and in america yeah so my background actually my mom is australian so you have to forgive this American voice underneath is at least half Aussie. Um, but uh, I grew up as, uh, as my brother and I as kids, we ended up traveling between our farm in Kansas that my mom and dad owned and operated and uh, a wheat farm. And we ended up traveling back to my uncle and grandparents' place up, uh, up in the mountains in the Darling, Darling Downs Range right there on the uh, border of New South Wales and um, Queensland. And so we got to go back and see a little bit of the ranching life, uh, work out uh, fixing fences, making sure that there weren't wild dogs running around the property and taking care of rabbits or roos on, on Friday hunting expeditions. So uh, it was a blast for us as kids. And uh, it was it felt close to home because it was still the rural farming life. But at the mm-hmm. same time, I, I learned fairly quickly, even uh, working with dad on the uh, farm here in Kansas, that I, I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So I I started to formulate this uh, this thought of, you know, how can we enjoy the things that make the rural community so beautiful uh, while yet also scaling and building a business that can support our lifestyle there um, and where it's not a feast and famine situation, right? Uh, so that that was kind of became my vision and purpose for my own entrepreneurial journey. You, you told me a story recently about actually your very first business and your entrepreneurial journey was actually started on the farm in New South Wales. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so you're bringing this up. I'm, I'm, I might get some <laughs> from my uncle if he hears about this. I think he probably knew. But uh, so my uncle has a four and a half thousand acre uh, organic cattle ranch there, and for a while they were experimenting trying to grow different uh, cash crops. Um, for those of you who know Stanthorpe region, there's a lot of veggies, stone fruit grown in the area. And um, we, uh, we had this season that we were down there where, where Uncle Shane, he was uh, growing beets in one of the fields. And my brother and I thought it would be a little uh, cheeky, but also a good opportunity for us to uh, uh, grab some beets from the field and uh, go and sell it at an uh, orienteering meet. And mom was a big fan of orienteering. And so here we are, my brother and I sitting, you know, amongst the crowd of adults getting ready for each race and going back and forth. And we're sitting here with a box of beets and uh, selling them for, I don't know, $4 a bunch or something like that. So, so many? Uh, I think it was about $4 a bunch of maybe five, five beets. Five <laughs> So I mean, we I, we were putting on the kid face and, and people were just throwing yeah. for our box. So we felt like pirates and it was a lot of fun. So how old were you? Sorry. Oh gosh, this would have been maybe my brother was eight and I was ten, maybe. 
Okay. So, so from uh, your first uh, beetroot selling uh, entrepreneurial business in rural uh, New South Wales, coming all the way from Kansas and going back, tell us a little bit about your actually your first business, which um, which you started when you were at college and ended up being what to us is a really interesting idea and actually quite scalable um, and quite interested in the journey about how you actually got there. Sure. Well, and and kind of to frame this as I as I portray this story, I mean, this is this is definitely a service industry that I went into. So for everyone who's working in the service industry, I think one thing we have to remember as service providers is that at the end of the day, our time as an individual service provider cannot be scaled past a certain point. And so we have to figure out ways to leverage that or or to grow our businesses in other ways. And when I was in college, I, I decided for whatever reason, I'm not quite sure why, because I was going to university to be a math major. And so in, in uni, um, I decided that I wanted to uh, start a web design company, kind of tick the boxes of what I, what I wanted to do for the next few years at that stage. And I wanted to travel, wanted to be able to work anywhere in the world from a computer and an internet connection. And I kind of was creative and I enjoyed that art side. So I said, why not be a graphic designer and a website designer? Okay, let's give it a shot. And I took on a traditional model at first, which was a, a long six to nine week process of you know, onboarding clients, understanding what they want, building mood boards, gathering all their content together, starting to build the site, going back and forth on content, like just what ended up being a, a roundabout nightmare way, looking back on it, of getting a website built. At the end of the day, clients were satisfied, but they weren't really happy, right? They weren't excited about their site other than, oh my gosh, we're done. Thank goodness. And it was something I saw across the industry. Uh, I was working in the web, uh, uh, web design industry specifically for wedding photographers. And uh, it provided a lot of really unique insights because I knew my ideal client very well after... Uh, um, that's probably about 3,000 hours worth of building websites. And uh, I, I knew what my client, my ideal client, really wanted. And I knew that they were the type of client who could make decisions quickly. And I knew that they were the type of client who wanted a website yesterday. So off of that framework, I uh, decided to build a lot of automated processes to onboard the clients in a more efficient way so that I was actually not a part of that onboarding process. And this was done by a series of questionnaires, Dropbox uh, folders that they could upload their content to, and just really thinking through that whole process and, and showing them like, here's the content you might need for your website if you want to do this. Here's the kind of content you need to collect if you want to do this other thing. And walking them through that process in a pre-recorded automated way. So I said, well, with all this content collected kind of autonomously for me, you know, what can I do from that? What can I leverage at that point? And I said, you know, honestly, with the proficiency of my skills at this point or at that point in my business, I could probably knock this sucker out in a day. And um, once I had all that content, I uh, decided, let's try it. So I tried a couple test sites for myself, like go pick a website and try and rebuild it in a day, right? You got to go get all the content and then just rebuild it. And I found out that I was doing it a little bit faster than I had expected. So I kind of went all in on the model, took the risk, and uh, announced that I was doing one-day websites. And people were kind of shocked and a little blown away. I love that. Feel the fear and do it anyway, which is very much what we're all about. Is that just take yeah. the leap? 
<laughs> take the leap, jump in. And it's so key to like know what the risk is, calculate it, and then just go. Right. You mm. can't sit and think about it all day long. And that's something that I'm glad I jumped, jumped off that cliff and and, and realized that mm. all right, I'm not gonna hit the bottom anytime soon. <laughs> so I, I streamlined my workflow. I went from a nine, six to nine week workflow and I got it down to a day. What averaged out is six to eight hours of my work, my time, and uh, was able to live chat with the client in the morning, get everything rolling, make sure we're on the right track, design for a good chunk of time until about two in the afternoon, and then um, do any tweaks. So we jump on uh, live chat again. Uh, video chat, and they would see my screen, and I would make changes right as they requested them. It also allowed them to see that I was actually an expert and not just subbing it out to some guy in India for you know, five bucks an hour or something like that. Um, and it, it added a lot of personality and credibility to the whole experience. The conversations that we had were probably more... Um, richer. More, yeah, they were more fun. They were richer than, mm. than anywhere else where it's just emailing back and forth to get your website built. Yeah. So, that, that was the model that I had done. So, so, I mean, I think this is a really key point um, in terms of the regionals being able to scale a service predominantly is I think where, and this has been my experience, is that not knowing how to actually productize that service, which is ultimately what you did. You actually took all these service hours and product them in, productized them into a one-day website. Do you know or do you, I mean, you may not have thought about this, but do you think there's like two or three key things that actually people need to think about in terms of that? moving from that service base to productizing? Yeah, and I think the question everyone has to ask themselves is, do I enjoy doing this service and what are my strengths in that service? So for me, I knew that the creativity of building something new from scratch um, was, was my fix, right? And the conversation, the relationship that surrounded that was like icing on the cake. So I'm very, very good with meeting new people and, and engaging with new people and jumping in and helping them kind of dive in and guide their stories. But I, I also knew that I would be a terrible, absolutely horrible webmaster, meaning somebody who does ongoing maintenance with a site or long-term kind of projects. And I had to learn that the hard way. Um, and, and I think most people do, to be honest, to really figure out what those strengths and weaknesses are. But you, you kind of get to see a pattern. Uh, and the pattern for me was you know, I had about three months invested in a project um, before my clock ran out. I was bored or I wanted to do something different. And for the one-day websites, it worked really well because I was in and out in a day. And I, I managed through on a nine-week schedule because it was getting close to that three months, but wasn't quite there yet. Mm. So I think that's the first thing you have to ask is what are my strengths and weaknesses and do I really enjoy doing this? Mm. Because if you're going to try and scale something that you hate, it's going to get worse and it's going to suck yeah. more. Well, and you lose the connection with your market a lot more as you scale. Um, it's not just about you so much. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that you have to really truly understand your ideal client. Like if mm. you don't know what your ideal client looks like, and I know a lot of service-based industries work with whomever. Right. So for me, I could have worked building websites for a lot of industries. I specifically chose wedding photographers, photographers. And then after that point, I said, okay, I only want to work with wedding photographers who want a website in one day. And, you know, I was even willing to go deeper and keep providing or keep chasing after that really true niche market. Um, but at the end of the day, I decided to 
dump the company and uh, and go do something else, right? Going back to my strengths and, and weaknesses profile. So really knowing who your ideal client is, articulating that, writing it down on paper is, is key to scaling because you can't scale what you, you're walking into blind. You just don't know. And then I think also the third the third thing I'd like to point out is looking at the global or national scale, right? It doesn't have to be global, but a lot of service industries can go to the global scale, is that you are competing, whether you like it or not, whether you choose to do it or not, you are competing on a global market. And I think that that's what really gets rural businesses into trouble, especially here in the States. A lot of rural product-based businesses didn't want to get on board with Amazon for a long time. And Amazon just took over because there's companies in uh, Arizona, for example, who would sell leather to people in Kansas, where, there, where we have great leathersmiths here, but they didn't want to modernize and get on the largest, re, uh, the largest retail website in the world now. Mm. And so I think that you have to realize whether you choose to or not, you're competing on a global market because your client or your ultimate potential client can, can go to a marketplace online and Google somebody to work with. And for the service-based industry, the internet has closed the gap of distance, right? We can't just go down the street mm. and, you know, that's the only solicitor in town. So that's the solicitor I'm going to work with, yeah. or it's the one who's done the family business. You can go online and get solicitation advice. You can get solicitors to work with you for pennies, compared to maybe your local solicitor. But honestly, like we're a price-driven world for, for a lot of for a lot of things. And that includes services until you find that point of differentiation. So something that is it doesn't matter whether you're in Kansas or in in Australia or as you, you know, Dorothy only got to go to Kansas and uh, sorry, from Kansas to Oz and come back. You've done it many times. So aren't you lucky? But um look something that it doesn't really matter where you are in the world that that Small businesses, especially service-orientated ones, they don't want to pay by, you know, do an hourly rate. They don't know whether to do a project-type cost. Um, Costing, invoicing is one of the least favourite parts of every small business or entrepreneur's journey. How did you, and in regional areas, there's often an expectation that, oh, you're not in the city, so you're going to be cheap as chips. How do you get past that hurdle and what's the formula you put in place? Yeah, so I was terrible with my numbers at first. <laughs> um, and you're a mathematician. I feel so much better now because I'm really bad with numbers. The problem is, like, I realized how much crap I got myself into because of how bad mm-hmm. I had been at, at making assumptions, right? So as a small business or as a, you know, if you're a business, especially if you're looking to scale, right, because... Anytime you talk about scaling, you're talking about amplifying your current system. So if your current system isn't damn close to perfect, then you're going to be scaling a lot of issues. And for me, I was always under the assumption of once the cash is in the door, I just spend it, right? You know, pay, pay, pay my bills and then pay myself and you kind of whatever is left over, you pay yourself. And I didn't cash flow project very well. And um, I had to like really hustle and take on some clients that I would have otherwise said no to because I um, I didn't cash flow project well. But at that point, I realized like okay, so if if I need to fill up my calendar with this one day website model, if I need to fill up my calendar with four sites every month for a year, 
I can't project that out, right? Because I'm working with a clientele who wanted it yesterday. Why are they going to wait two months to get on my schedule? And that was really kind of a hurdle for me to get over is to kind of scale that. So I actually put more time into relationship building and also just being insanely helpful to people who are asking questions uh, in a lot of these wedding photographer-based Facebook groups. And for me, using Facebook as a way to connect with an audience and to always say, okay, I'm in this group of, let's say, 3,000 people. You know, I know what my conversion rate, I know how many people I need to help or talk to in order to generate a relationship that's going to turn into a client relationship. So for me, that's really where that mathematician brain kicked in is conversion rates, conversion rates, conversion rates. Trust the numbers, do what you're doing. And there's going to be seasons of feast and famine. But if you continue to put those uh, systems into place for you and, and trust the numbers... I think that it, uh, at least in my experience, it really worked out well. That really links well. I'm not sure if you've read Cal Newport's book in Deep Work, and he talks about this 4D framework around leads and lags and how you can't change things Mm -hmm. after they've happened. So if you think about your lead, your lead was how many conversations can I have in Facebook groups and how how helpful can I be, how many questions can I answer, because I know if I do more of those, I'm going to convert more clients, and that's your lag. Yeah. And I think that's a key thing that a lot of businesses in general, not just regional ones, forget that it's actually about the leads, not the lags. You can't change the lag. Right. Absolutely. And I I think, honestly, one of the things I saw so many times building websites for service-based industries is they didn't understand what the true goal or the function of their website was. And they just built a website to to build a website, which to me at that time seemed so strange and foreign, even being in in the industry as a web developer. Um, and I thought to myself, why, you know, why would you, why would you go spend, why would you pay me $4,000 to build you a website that is just like a fancy business card that, you know, I'm looking at your Google analytics numbers, 300 people a month are, are, are seeing it and you're not making any client conversions. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. And so for me, one of the things I focused on was that leads and that lags mentality. When it comes to a website, when they land on your homepage, what is their path through your website? Every small business owner should be able to answer that question. What's the path and what's the ultimate goal? Am I trying to increase my uh, leads list or my, my incoming leads from the website by 20%? 20% of zero is still zero. So am I going for 50 leads from the website every month or every week? And how, how do I get there? How do I get that? A lot of that is, um, I mean, there's a lot of content out there on the internet now by people who are still smarter than me on, on specifically oh. how you do that today. But at the end of the day, you, you have to trial and, and trial and error a lot. And that's marketing, right? Marketing is, you know, shotgun a bunch of strategies against the wall and see which one sticks and repeat. Whereas sales is converting, uh, converting those leads. And so marketing gets you your leads, sales converts those leads. And um, I think focusing on those conversion rates is huge, especially when it's coming off your website. One of the questions that often gets asked, and this is probably a little bit left field, and but one of the questions that often gets asked in this age of social media and um, AI and everything else is, do you still need a website? How applicable is it? I mean, one thing I've always believed is, yes, you do, because you've got to anchor something. But how is the applicability still there for a website? Yeah, that's a great question. Does everybody need a website? No. 
Here, let me put it this way. Should small businesses have a website? Yes, even if it's a simple one. And, and the reason behind that is there's a balance between expectation and a balance between a return on investment of profitability. So if you have the option as a small business to have a simple one-page website built with a uh, contact form as your, as your main goal, right? You're wanting to convert a contact form and you provide some simple information of where you're located uh, and what you do, who you are. I think that that is very reasonable to expect, especially in today's world. But that being said, I see a lot of people thrive without having a website at all because their content is on Instagram or it's on Facebook or it's on Etsy or they're selling on eBay. Like there's, there's ways that you can generate a lot of money by not having a website. So do I think it's an absolute need? No, but the one caveat to that is remember who owns your audience. If you have a website and a blog that you're posting on and that's where your audience goes for information on you, you can keep them there a lot easier than Facebook who charges you to reach your audience. So when somebody else owns your audience or owns the fact that they're coming to their site to find you, uh, you, you just have to be comfortable with that. So Jason, um, one of the things that we were talking about is this concept of, of going global. And one of the things that you said as the best advice you've ever been given is always expose yourself to radically different ideas and people. Dive into their opinions as if uh, they were your own to firm up your belief. And I really like that because in some of your story, your going global has been a bit organic and, and a lot of people are looking for a formula to doing that. But my I get from our conversations that we've had that yours has very much been about making connections, having lots of conversations, you know, reaching across the divide of, of ocean and countries and and there's not been a, a particular formula. Well, I suppose that is a formula in itself. But, you know, is that is that how you think that you've built a global um, awareness about what you do? And Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I, I grew up in a small town, Whitewater, Kansas, with, you know, just a few hundred people. And uh, we were on a farm just outside of town. And, and one of the things that... Uh, fascinated me was this difference between farming in America and Australia and going across the pond and, uh, you know, all of this um, global environment that I was exposed to as a kid growing up. And I think, honestly, being exposed to that different culture in Australia, although it is a Western culture and it's English speaking and there's a lot of really cool um, crossovers, but it was just different enough that even as kids, we picked up on radically different ideas. Um, I mean, one of the, it's funny, the story that we always tell people when we get home from traveling, uh, my wife and I, we say, uh, you know, well, uh, there was two major points of conversation wherever we went with, uh, you know, meeting new people or talking with friends. It was guns and politics, right? <laughs> Everybody wanted to know about American guns and American politics. And, it's, it's something that I thought was hilarious um, growing up was, wow, it's so different. And they're, they're, it's not just the script that you're fed uh, growing up in one country in one isolated environment. And um, I'll never forget a story uh, that my uncle was telling me when I was probably in my teenage years growing up. And he was telling me about this company who had, they were a trucking company. And they were trying to figure out how to deliver LPG gas or LPG, liquid petroleum gas, um, more efficiently with their whole fleet. And so 
randomly, I guess, or I, I don't know maybe the basis of where this idea came from, but they decided to study bees and beehives. And I was like, why? Like, this seems so, so silly. And um, what they found out was the way the bees communicate as, um, as they talk to one another without, within their honey collecting or their pollen connect collecting uh, endeavors is that they're constantly communicating to tell, you know, one bee that maybe is full on pollen heading back to the nest, you know, where the next place to go collect pollen is. They're constantly rerouting all these worker bees. And um, so what they decided to do with this trucking company was include uh, GPS navigation in every truck. And the driver's sole instruction was to follow the GPS 100% of the time with blind faith. And then they created an algorithm that calculated across their entire trucking routes in, in, in real time, um, you know, where one truck needed to uh, adjust its route to maybe go deliver on the, you know, even if it was turn around and drive all the way back to the far side of town, that delivery is going to make more economic and financial success for the company than if you continued, you know, even a kilometer down the road, a major yeah. delivery. And it was based off of, which trucks had how many bottles left on the truck and how could they fulfill this order with the least number of miles driven and, and which drivers had time left on their clock and which ones didn't. So it was a fascinating model, but it was all based around bees. theory and, and how bees worked. And that was out of Australia. Yeah, that was actually in Australia, I believe. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess I haven't ever looked up the uh, company. So my <laughs> uncle could have been pulling my leg, but I, I loved it. Right. And the cross pollination pun intended um, of business ideas between industries was something that was dramatically fascinating to me. And, and that's really where I think that uh, idea of being radically open to different ideas. So how do, how do artists make money painting paintings? And does that apply to uh, how you sell books in a bookstore? I don't know. Maybe dive in, see, see what it looks like. Mm. Bees, we we talk we've talked before about bees on this on this program, and they are the doers of the 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 ecosystem, if you like, of the the business ecosystem, and that constant communication is is vital uh, across the ditch, across wherever. How then do you? Because you're you're also the president of your local chamber of commerce, is that right? Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, so that's um that's very altruistic of you. That's excellent, and but. That is something that a lot of people would relate to here in Australia because most regions have got their, their Chamber of Commerce. How do you, when you're going to an event like that, everyone's thinking local, everyone's, yay, support local, do the right thing, and then here you are with this global mindset. Do people get it? No. And what do you do to get them get to get it? Uh, yeah, that's that's a real struggle, and it's funny because I, I've met with a few of the uh, chambers when I was in Australia, actually not this last trip but the year before, and... Um, it blew me away how organized and and just advanced in my perspective uh, a lot of these even rural chamber of commerce or, or or organizations were, and I think the thing that you have to understand about at least Kansas and the Midwest is that we we all conglomerate to the big city at the end of the day, right? So hmm. even if I live in Whitewater, uh, Kansas, which is, um, you know, 70 kilometers away from the big city, Wichita, 300,000 people. My commute is going into the big city every day. My groceries is the big city. 
everything except maybe kids going to school and ball games after school is in the big city. And so there's no local IGA in Whitewater, Kansas, although we could support one if people were willing to shop there. And, and so for me, I think the biggest struggle is local to us is vastly different um, to local to you guys, right? Local mm-hmm. to us is a two-hour drive. Local to us is an hour and a half commute one way. And it's hard when you're competing at that level as a small regional center um, because unless you're way out in the sticks or way out in the outback, um, there's always somewhere better to go to. Mm. And and for us, it's driving to the big Walmarts, right? I mean, Walmarts the size of malls that you that you have in Australia. And I, I was thinking about this last time. I was like, man, these malls are so vibrant and and lively, and people love being here. And that you know, there's Woolies here and Coles and Kmart, but all these little vendors in between. And I thought to myself. Well, Walmart has all of this. Walmart's got it all. But see, the thing that Australia, the only thing that Australia really sees of Walmart are the bad videos and, and um, women in their underwear and those really bad memes. That's probably Australia's experience with Walmart. Yeah, well, and, and, you know. and they're not wrong, right? Uh, those, oh, good, right. Okay, so we're on the money there. Yeah, you're on the money there. And mm-hmm. and I think it's sad, right? Because I've experienced both worlds. But, you know, even, even from the Australian mindset coming back over to um, Midwest America, just put yourself in the perspective of you always are driving somewhere because fuel isn't that expensive. We pay $2 a gallon, whereas I ran the math last time I was there and it was close to $6 a gallon that we're, you guys are paying in Australia. So we pay one third the cost of fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us to drive 30 minutes to an hour is, is just part of the day. And, and I realize like there's people who have long commutes and things like that, but I'm talking about everything. Like mm. you get home from work, you see their kid, you see your kids, and you realize, oh, we've got to pop into town to grab some groceries. Driving back into town, and and that is, it, it's such an interesting concept, and it's something I've had to like really remember that our local community, especially in the chamber, they they view local just bigger than I view local, and so I think it's it's translating that to okay, if you as a as a business community don't feel like you compete can compete bigger, then you're suffering, you're suffering the same mindset that everybody else is suffering, which is let's go into the city. So if you're not willing to take your work into the city, then you have to figure out a way to scale digitally out into the world where other Mm -hmm. people that is too big of a barrier of entry and they won't do it. That, that perspective of local is a really interesting one because um, I lived in Mount Isa in northwestern Queensland for uh, three or four years and I always used to find it hilarious that the inconvenience that it would be to residents who would have to go... Now, the, the full, probably the, the length of or the breadth of Mount Isa was about six kilometres all up and mm-hmm. to have to go from, you know, Sunset, which was on one of the extremities, over to the Irish pub, oh, no, we'll go to the Buffs because... Yeah, it's far more, far closer. I, I haven't been to the Irish. I haven't been over the river for years, they'd say. And that that concept of local is incredible. But if we can just talk about, because you're saying about driving and, and the cost of fuel and everything else, which is a whole other issue for a whole other day. But can we move into, you know, AI for a minute? We've spoken to... Sure. Well, probably for more than a minute, actually. But we've spoken about digital, we've spoken about social, we've done, you know, all of that. 
And just this week, I have to bring it up, in Arizona, there was the um, driverless car, the autonomous car. <laughs> that ran over that lady. Uber, <laughs> that ran over the lady. Now, people see this, and there are plenty of doomsayers, naysayers, and all the rest of it about um, AI anyway. You're in that space now. How scary is it? T- tell us what is this big beast that is AI, first of all, and how does it apply to small business level? I love this topic. Thank you so much for answer, for asking this <laughs> oh, question. Oh, you are welcome. It wasn't prompted at all. Um, <laughs> so first to address the uh, incident in Arizona, um, I, absolutely, I, I absolutely think that that was a huge tragedy. Um, mm. And it's, it's really sad to see when technology fails, um, whether it's your phone crashing on you all the time or whether it's a car uh, running over a pedestrian that's an autonomous vehicle. One thing I will say is there was a human driver. uh, There was a human behind the wheel, um, but the car was on autonomous mode and it was the AI that was in control. So at the end of the day, um, the reality that we have to face is not uh, should we do this or should we not? Because it's almost like if you were to say, in the invent of electricity, should we have electricity or should we not? Uh, It's something that I think, uh, whether we want it or not, someone somewhere is going to do it. And if somebody does it, everybody has to do it. Uh, Or at least there's this expectation that in order to compete, you just have to, you have to move forward. You have to adopt it. So with that being, you know, kind of the premise of how we, how we talk about this I think that the, the scary part about AI that people get pigeonholed on so often is, is what we would call the singularity, right? It's the AI that takes over the nukes and bombs everybody. It's the AI that takes over all the cars and drives them into the ocean. It's, you know, the AI with this nefarious or maybe even not nefarious, right? It might just be a computer program that says, well, um, in order to increase happiness, um, we must, um, we must remove people from this earth. And it doesn't understand that life is precious. It doesn't have empathy. And I honestly don't believe that AI will ever be able to truly replicate human empathy. Now, as soon as I say that, somewhere down the line, somebody's going to figure that out. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think that, that that's something that we as humans have control over in the long term, um, much more than anything else. Because the AI can replace efficiency, The AI can replace decision-making to some degree. Um, But at the end of the day, AI is not going to be able to replace the shared experiences that we have as humans between one another and the empathy that comes alongside that. Uh, It's always going to be crunching numbers, analyzing data. Even if it becomes wildly smarter than us, there's the emotional connection that it still won't be able to truly interpret. So So how does that... I'm sorry. No, I, I was just going to say, I think that the scariest thing about AI is honestly the trust we as humans give it. So it's not the AI itself, but it's it's the trust that we as humans are giving this AI. And quite frankly, a lot of people are giving this trust blindly, uh, whether it's driving your car, uh, ordering stuff on Amazon, telling you what the weather is, like y- you trust this without thought. And this is something where you know, as somebody who's leading a technology build around AI, I'm very conscious of, and it's something that we, I believe, uh, in Alice Analytics, we have this huge stewardship responsibility of 
how do we create AI that acts as a companion and not AI that acts as a um, <clears throat> as a decision maker or an authority? Can, sorry, can I just jump in there? I just I just really think this is important to note. On the um, podca- podcast that I was listening to, and it had exactly this conversation because it said that AI will create new capabilities, but it's not going to give them to humans. It's going to give them to more AI because right. humans can't enhance those capabilities. So how do you design AI now to try and do that, to have that stewardship and that integration with humans? And that's the bit that, that I can't get my head around. Yeah, no, and that's, uh, I don't know that that's a, a, that's a question that anybody's really figured out the answer mm. to because that drives, um, drives that empathy solution. So if AI cannot download, so to say, um, this upgrade to humans on the way that it analyzes or sees the world, then how do we effectively communicate with it and treat it almost as a separate being? or this entity that we have to now create a dialogue with to mm. explain why this is important to, to us as humans. And I, I think that, I think that designing AI with, with a capability for um, ongoing input from, from its creators or ongoing input, at least from the, from humans without this blanket wall goes up, humans are obsolete. AI is moving forward on its own. I mean that's that's ultimately like the scary the scary thing mm. um, the singularity. But remember that AI is broken into two worlds: soft AI, which encompasses all the AI that anybody has built today, and hard AI, which is the singularity event. It's the one AI that does everything for you. It tells you what the weather is. It orders your toilet paper before you know you need it. It drives you to work in your car. Um, it analyzes people in front of you and gives you all the information from their social media accounts before every meeting. It's 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 what predicts everything before you even need it or you even know that you need it. And and that's that's the scary part. But nobody's built that yet. Mm. We have a bunch of soft AIs that do one thing and one thing really good. Marking student assessments, actually, that's an interesting one. There's a new university here in Australia that's doing that. You don't even know that yeah. a robot's actually uh, marked your assessment at uni. Yeah, oh, mm-hmm. that's... Uh, I mean, which is interesting from a, creating a, a learning algorithm around that. Obviously, professors mark the same way. <laughs> well, there are some professors that don't have empathy either, I'll say. <laughs> yeah, and it's fascinating how sometimes that can also be more valuable to a student than a professor grading a paper, right? Mm. So I have a professor who is notoriously bad at singling out students and... Um, docking their grade without really giving a reason for it, whereas an AI can be almost sure. Yeah. And so you have to understand the cost of allowing an AI to do that in terms of what are you giving up to to let that happen. Um, And and even with Alice, what we're building, one of the things we're having a research study done on now by um, uh, University of Michigan State um, is... Does Alice actually remove some of the human cognitive biases that happen in the interview and the hiring process? Because all of a sudden, if we can remove some of these biases, I mean, I'm talking about stuff uh, like I found out that this candidate went to the same school that I did, and now I'm positively um, positive 
influenced on that individual, even if I don't bring that up in conversation or talk about it, uh, it it's still something that can positively affect my decision as a human, mm-hmm. right? Alice, like, separate that and say, well, that's, that's data that doesn't matter to what their positivity or what their articulation is. Mm. Yeah. I mean, all sorts of interesting things. Mm. We'll put some links to Alice um, uh, and, and all of the infrastructure around that sort of thing on the on the website, on the Project Leap website. For me, to get my head around this, the whole AI concept, we have, we've developed AI almost to give us more control over our lives, over our hiring processes, over all of this, yet we're relinquishing so much control to AI. So it seems to be like this cyclical contradiction and it's it's so fraught with ironies and, and everything else. I just it, in one way it does my head in but then in the other way I find it completely fascinating you know so how how do you strike that balance how do you strike that balance between the suspicion and the no I'm not giving up control and for me as a bit of a control freak I'm big enough to admit that um th- that's something I can't deal with you know but how do you get that balance yeah, that's a great question. It's actually a question people were asking back in uh, 2004, 2006, 2008 about Facebook and social media. Mm. Um, but you look at where we're at now 10 years later, and um, people have just given up everything to social media. Most people, right? Not everybody. I, I really applaud the ones that stay off of it and, and don't engage it. Um, but at the end of the day, it's it's a cost-benefit cost, it's a, a cost analysis, right? So is it going to cost me more in my life and society to not engage with this tool or do I want to follow the rabbits down the rabbit hole and see where this goes? Um, for me, the way to be a good steward with AI, uh, stewardship is something I'm very passionate about. Mm. Um, to be a good steward with AI means making sure that we set up um, you know, the do-no-evils uh, of the world, right? It's the... It's the AI that is focused on um, creating a, a new space for individuals to articulate their talents, to connect with one another versus a space to exploit people or to uh, try and make a buck, right? Mm-hmm. Every business has to be sustainable in its, in its financials. But at the end of the day, if AI, if your whole goal, goal with AI is to produce money, you're going to sell out to every opportunity to make more money using that AI. So I think this vision and this opportunity to be about something more is, is really where those AI projects uh, that are successful and that I hope will be more successful, um, it's, it's built around that uh, vision. It's built around a leader who has a clear understanding of, of where that technology needs to go. And I think for me, especially in the... Uh, in the space. I, I don't engage with every AI. Um, I do engage with some. I feel like it would be a little bit of a <laughs> rub on the nose if I didn't. Um, but at the same time, it's it's a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, you know, I use Google Assistant uh, every day, and it's, uh, it's an AI tool, but I don't have Amazon Alexa in my home. I probably will never put an Amazon product that is connected to Alexa in my home. And it's because I'm happy to give Google all the data that it wants on me, but I'm not going to give Amazon all my spending data and all the data on me, right? Mm. They know that I buy things on Amazon. They know how I buy things on Amazon, but I'm not going to put their products, whether it's their cameras, their um, Amazon Alexas, their speakers, their microphones all around me because I'm not going to give those, I'm not going to give one company both pieces of the puzzle, right? 
how I how I operate daily, and then how I spend my money. <laughs> and actually, uh, on that note, I want to sort of uh, ask you a question and come back to yourself because, you know, we've been talking about growing big. We've been talking about AI. Am I, and I love AI. I'm studying my PhD, looking at this kind of connection between AI and business and how we integrate. Uh, but it's, from my experience, it's an absolute deep dive down a rabbit hole and there's so much yeah. unknown. Um, but all the things you're talking about, things like Google Assistant, all those sort of things are not commonplace to the average person. But recently you had to go back to running your family's farm, which for a lot of our Mm -hmm. rural listeners, you know, they have this, to have a foot in each camp, this kind of, I've got to be rural, I've got to be regional, it's really basic, it's what we did, you know, 50 or 100 years ago, and then I've got to be thinking about AI and this massive tech growth. How do you kind of integrate the two or balance the two and, um, and, you know, keeping something as traditional as a farm running when you're also in this space of AI? Right. Well, one of the things in farming and AI that crossover, there's always fascinated um, me, especially after being involved in building an AI uh, for this for this company, is to really understand the data and to know if your AI is being successful or not, you have to rely on some kind of truth, right? Um, and it's usually a truth produced by experts. And so one of the things that I think is a huge opportunity, especially in rural communities, even if it's only short term, is uh, an opportunity to collaborate and to consult with a lot of these companies who are trying to figure out, you know, for example, if if there was a company that was using AI to monitor and measure measure your soil and to try and figure out a new way or new patterns to um, maybe add fertilizer on in a different ratio or um, create a different mixture of fertilizer to increase the organic material and the carbon uh, consumption of the soil. Um, that's a space where they need people to be able to go out and give the expert opinion. And, and a lot of farmers have all of this old knowledge has been passed down generation by generation where they just know, right? I mean, I, my dad, my uncle, my grandparents, like they all could just like look at a piece of ground and say, oh, this is going to be a bad year or this is going to be a good year. I mean, they just knew. And for them to be able to articulate and to pass down this knowledge that becomes a a new string, right? Even if it's being adopted by AI, that knowledge can then be, or the approach even to how that knowledge is formulated can be adopted into this um, machine learning process that can exponentially create something more beautiful and integrated on the farm. I think farming's hard because currently, especially with the high labor in Australia, high labor costs in Australia, it's all about systems and processes, right? Because if you have a bad year, there's not a lot of forgiveness for that. You're still relying mm. on the weather. Mm. Um, and so the adaptability of the farm is probably the, the biggest um, strength that uh, I think rural people have um, mm. is how do, we, how do we change and adapt to the cycles that Mother Nature throws? And AI can't do that. Can try and predict it, but it can't be can't be adaptable so much. Well, maybe not yet. Right. Well, and I think AI AI gives you a little bit more of an advantage in, in predicting some of the things. But on the other sense, like it's all tied to a global market, right? So let's say, for example, that you have a, a cattle ranch and you have more sunny days in the year um, than expected, and that causes a drought. Maybe it's a two or three year drought. But what also happens in consequence of that is that you have more sunny days in a year, meaning that a solar farm could be more productive and generate more income for a farm. So understanding like how does my farm and even building an AI model around saying, 
if a drought happens in your area, what is a commodity that can can operate inversely from from your main product or your main source that can provide you with income in those drought seasons yep. or in a wet season, right? Because that's that's a different thing. So I, I don't know that I have any great answers for you in, in terms of that, um, but I, I think it's a fascinating space I think well. that's a pretty good answer, I think, you know, mm. in terms of the farmers finding that gap and how they can use technology to do that. So, But surely if you've got, if you're, if you're programming AI, um, in inverted commas, I say programming, but if you're setting up AI to be a predictor, then there are certain formulas that go into that um, to come up with what it's going to predict. So surely then based on those predictions, you can put um, formulas in to come up with potential outcomes and potential contingencies then. Because doesn't it all come down to if then? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to some degree it does, but think about it this way. So if I asked you to tell me, um, you know, what makes me a redhead, right? Obviously, if you see me, if you can see me, you look at my hair and you say, okay, he's a redhead, he has red hair, right? Now, if I ask you what makes me a positive person, how, how do you quantify that? How do, how do you describe what makes Jason a positive mm-hmm. person? And, I mean, this is something that we've been analyzing and really trying to work on. The amount of data that, I mean, you'll, you'll know, either you'll know or you won't know, but you don't know how to articulate it, right? right? If I talk to you for 20 minutes, you can walk away from that conversation and say, yeah, he's positive or he's not. Heck, if I talk to you for 60 seconds, you can tell if I was positive or not. It's that gut feeling. Mm-hmm. But what's happening is subconsciously we're analyzing mountains of data. Um, I mean, even our algorithm itself is crunching over 40,000 data points every minute of video. Hmm. And so that is a mountain of, mountain of data that if you were to try and compute in a manual way, right? So you run it through a mathematical formula. Uh, it's, it's not just 40,000 variations of one plus one plus one plus one. It's variations across an entire set of people. So imagine hmm. 40,000... Uh, data points for every minute of video. And then you've got to cross-reference that one minute of video with 10 million other minutes of video Mm. and develop what is an ever-evolving algorithm. And so that's the power of AI is it's taking big data and actually making it useful. So, so Jason, as to be expected, every time we talk to, I've talked to you, we could go make this podcast two hours if we wanted to. Oh. But I think kind of as a roundup for that, I've actually got a bit of a question for you that coming back to the personal and given that we're talking about potentially fear factor of AI. And I love that, you know, you took a different view on this question. So what do you think is the thing that keeps you up at night? What's the one thing that keeps you up at night? So I think for me, what keeps me up at night is the self-sufficiency of our, our food and in our agricultural businesses, right? So if you kind of follow through the existing model without any major changes in society, you have uh, the small family farms selling out to the bigger farms, right? Because they either get to a point where they have to sell or more likely um, a generation quits farming and the next generation doesn't want to take it out. Uh, that's actually what happens more often around our area here in Kansas is my parents' generation is leaving the farm and not they, they don't have anybody who wants to take it over because there's no money in it. Well, there's little money in it for small family farms. Um, the lifestyle's great, but the city looks better. Um, there's a lot of factors that play into that. And I mean, quite frankly, as, as a male, finding, finding a wife who wants to live on a farm and live a farmer's wife life, 
it's harder now than it ever was, I think. <laughs> you know, we've got farmer once a wife here. I was just about to say <laughs> that. We've got a TV out. show that might help you out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Australia. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's nothing against my wife by any means. I mean, she's an amazing lady and, and she, I mean, I'm on the farm, right? So I'm, oh. I'm managing it. I'm still in the city more often than not. But it's, it's a different lifestyle and it's a lifestyle that only a fair, uh, a fair small number of people understand and really enjoy. Uh, I think everybody thinks it looks cool. Um, the farmer markets and the little side things, but man, it is a lot of work mm. and not a lot of, uh, not a lot of social appreciation or, or joy, um, can come from others. So you have to be in it for yourself. Um, in, in the sense that you, you find joy in farming on your own by yourself mm. when it's hot and sweaty and dirty. Um, <laughs> But that being said, I think the self-sustainability of our food is a real issue because logically you go towards hydroponic farming, you decrease the amount of uh, square meters or acreage that it takes to grow food, um, which kind of exponentially makes our our body nutrient intake worse because we're not farming the way that it was designed or, or works best within nature. And so I think the self-sustainability of our, our farming practices really have to have a big overhaul. And I'm not quite sure how technology fixes that problem yet, mm. because it seems like every time we throw technology at it, it makes it worse mm. um, in, in one way or another that we might not understand until a generation later. But I would be really interested to see technology um, that takes farming back to its roots and and integrates it in a way that that nature is um that nature is doing the work while the uh the high labor cost of um maybe watering or maybe um harvesting those components right the components that aren't sacrificing the food value the food quality are replaced by technology Mm -hmm. the problem is we try and speed up the growth cycles we try and Get bigger plants, more more volume per acreage, and I think that's what's costing us our self sustainability in the long run and nutrient level. So yeah. on that that sustainability um, uh, conversation point, that is one of the big fears of AI and changing the changing marketplace globally and locally, no matter where you look at it. Um, you have shown what it is to be nimble within your own career and to take that mathematics um, sort of basis, or if you want to put that as your baseline, if you like, um, sure. and then, you know, you've, you've, you've added so many different dimensions to your, to your career. How do you reassure someone whose kids are starting school or about to go through uni and they're going to have however many career changes through their, through their life? How do you reassure them that they're going to be okay and there will be jobs for them, even though we've got a growing population and this thing called AI is coming in? Mm, yes, the AI takes over your job idea. Mm, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great conversation to have. Um, I'll say this kind of facetiously and then I'll go into a little bit more in-depth thought. Um, if you're going to work like a robot, you will be replaced by a robot. I think that's the number one hard truth that everyone has to understand um, because we're, we're faced with a middle and lower middle class that wants to have a better standard of life. In order to have a better standard of life, they have to A, generate more wealth for their family or B, cut on their spending. Right? The easiest thing in our control is cutting spending. 
But what we tend to gravitate to is uh, generating more wealth. And so in order to do that, we're constantly seeking these higher level jobs. And because we're doing that, companies that we're working for have to say, okay, well, we have more people coming in wanting larger salaries, wanting more benefits. So we have to automate more of our business to keep our profitability up so that we can provide more jobs and and pay more people. And I think that Australia is in this interesting growth cycle right now where, I mean, Brisbane, when I was there last time, was just absolutely bonkers compared to even a year ago or or two years before that. No, we've always been bonkers Um, in Brisbane. Yeah. Well, and and yeah, maybe it's just distance creates that perception (laughs) a little bit more, but I, I was fascinated to to have some of these conversations of, you know, where does where does AI stop and humans become valuable again in the future, right? Because if decision making is is being taken off the table, I mean, there's a whole class of individuals who realize, oh, oh my goodness, like I, my job may be at jeopardy. I honestly don't think that those jobs will be at jeopardy within the next twenty years or so because there's still a trust barrier that we have to get over as a society. Right now we're in this trust gap within society. We've closed mm-hmm. the distance gap in the last hundred years with the internet and telecommunications. Um, now we can have these conversations across the world versus me traveling there and, and, and talking with you guys. Um, but at the same time, now we have this huge trust gap. So how do we fix the trust gap and, and what's going to be the technology that uh, that replaces that and allows us to, um, take AI on maybe easier because I think these conversations will still keep going. General public sentiment will say, here's the line in the sand where we will not accept AI to do X, Y, or Z for us. Maybe that's driving their car. I don't know. Um, I, it's going to be a long time before you see all cars on the road autonomously mm-hmm. driving. Um, but then again, 14 years ago, Facebook seemed very strange. So. Let's take that concept of trust. And uh, if, you, if you're going to get advice, the only advice you would ever really truly trust is that from your future self. So if you were going to write a letter back to your younger self when you were embarking upon this journey before you sold those beats on the, the side of the road maybe or maybe perhaps when you were about to go into university to study maths, I personally can't understand why anyone would study maths. But anyway, what would you say in that letter so I think to answer that question, Meredith, the uh, first thing I would say, um, because if I didn't know how much time I had talking to my younger self, um, I would definitely say, look, prioritize the next 10 years of your life. Um, whatever you do in those 10 years is really going to define your worldview and also um, your priorities moving forward for the next 50 years after that. Um I think for me, that was very evident in making travel a priority, making um, entrepreneurship and adaptability within businesses a priority. I think that that was something where if I would have failed my last class, oh my gosh, like that could have been the end of the world. But just to say, you know, Jason, really make sure that you look for the people who can treasure what you have and appreciate you for who you are. Cherish your wife and uh, treat her like the gem that she is. And um, ultimately, I would tell my younger self, uh, make sure you buy Bitcoin in 2009, whatever you have to do to get it. 
Buy it in 2009, sell it December 31st, 2017. (laughs) And and well said about the wife. Um, Very important. Very important. So very well said there. Look, I mean, we're in this society now where I fall into the millennial category and millennials have this bad reputation for um, being lazy. They have a bad reputation for um, being spoiled or always getting what they want handed to them. And honestly, it's, it's, it's kind of come out of this really interesting societal uh, process of people not treasuring those around them and cherishing their spouse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if that kind of becomes your priority and your focus, so much of, of your vision and your future can be identified as a couple moving forward instead of individuals, Right. For me, I'm, I'm going to build a career around the lifestyle that my wife and I want to have, not a career that only highlights Jason and leaves Shelby in the dust, because that's a recipe for, for, um, for separation. It's a recipe for not having her in my life in the, in the future. And that's not something that I don't I, no. I don't want to have that. But so. love that. Relationship tips, how to manage AI, how to globe scale. I mean, to, to scale globally. Seriously, there's more than people are ever going to expect in this podcast. <laughs> and is there anything that, you can't do? I have to say that you've debunked the whole concept of millennials because, to be honest with you, I believe the same thing. But I think anybody who listens to this podcast for the, for the hour that it goes will um, realise that that's not true. And I know there's many millennials out there that are like you, so... Thank you so much for your time today. I think it, this today's podcast has been loaded with tips and tools and ideas and challenging thoughts to, to make people question the way they're doing things or to think about how they can take the leap and do something different. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Thanks for having me on. And I just encourage everybody to remember, take the leap, uh, go for broke and enjoy your passions in life. Take the leap, Project Leap, go for it. It's in the name. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. It was a fantastic hour to spend with you. Thanks very much. No, but thank you very much, ladies, and I'll let you get on with the rest of your day.